This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. And welcome to Let's Get Physiological, the podcast where we explore some of the fascinating science of life. In this podcast, we'll be discussing chronobiology. Now, that may sound complicated, but it basically means the study of how our bodies have adapted to certain timeframes. We'll be hearing from researchers on the surprising way in which our daily rhythms could impact on unexpected organs in our body. And how something as simple as altering the time at which we eat could impact our health. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. Our environment is filled with natural cycles in time. For example, changes in temperature over the different stages of the year, the cycles of the tides, which are affected by the moon's monthly orbit of the Earth, and of course, the 24-hour day and night cycle due to Earth's rotation on its axis. Unsurprisingly, over time, our bodies have learned to adapt to these changing environments, and much of our physiology is influenced by different cycles. This is known as chronobiology. We spoke to Carol Bussey, National Heart Foundation Research Fellow at the University of Otago, New Zealand, about a certain type of rhythm known as circadian rhythms. So a circadian rhythm is literally anything that cycles during the day. There's all kinds of rhythms and pretty much every cell in the body will have a circadian rhythm. So obvious ones that people will be aware of are sleep-wake cycles. Um, There's also a lot to do with blood pressure and heart rate, which is what I'm interested in. But Also, obviously, food intake and hunger and a lot of hormonal changes vary throughout the day. So as Carol said, the circadian rhythm is something which undergoes a 24-hour cycle. And the example that most of us will have heard of is this sleep-wake cycle. But Carol is interested in a specific organ that you may not expect to be influenced by a 24-hour rhythm, the heart. So the heart displays a natural 24-hour cycle and essentially it's setting itself up to support activity during the day when people are up and about and then to relax overnight when we're sleeping. So it has rhythms in, as I said, heart rate and blood pressure are the main ones, but there's also circadian rhythms in contractility. So essentially it's just allowing cardiac output to increase when we need to be able to be up and active and to be doing things and then to decrease overnight. And what's really important about that is it's not just to do with activity whilst it correlates with activity. Even if you turn the lights off or um, you rest, those circadian rhythms are maintained. So it's not directly linked to activity, but it's there to support the activity. So even our heart, which beats constantly throughout our life, is affected by a 24-hour cycle. So what sort of factors can influence circadian rhythms? So circadian rhythms are regulated by a number of factors. A big one is light. So during the daytime, it's light and We see that and our photoreceptors pick that up and our brain tells the rest of our body that it's light out and we should be up and doing things. But also food intake will affect a whole range of things. So there's a lot of metabolic signals that the organs get and temperature is a really big one as well. So we respond to the day-night cycles in temperature and and that can be a really big signal for for the rest of the body to know what it should be doing. And basically the each organ will respond differently to different signals. It'll have a bigger, say the liver um, will respond more to metabolic signals because it's metabolically driven, whereas other organs like the heart might respond more to neural signals from the brain. And that's something that we're really looking at in terms of circadian regulation of the heart. One of the things that we're really interested in at the moment is there are central clocks, so in the brain, 
that signal down through the nerves to the other organs, but there are also local clocks in each of the organs and an intrinsic regulation of, of the heart and heart rate. And so we're trying to figure out at the moment and tease apart a little bit where the main regulators of circadian rhythm in the heart lie and how they interact and kind of how the whole system is regulated. So while we know that our heart is influenced by a circadian rhythm, we're not exactly sure what causes it. But what happens if the circadian rhythm of our heart is disrupted? Could this lead to health problems? It's all kind of a bit of a muddle, so everything interacts with each other. But what we do know is the circadian rhythm in heart rate and blood pressure is disrupted in a lot of disease states, so diabetes and heart failure and in particular hypertension. So that has a lot of downstream effects, particularly hypertension. So if your heart rate and your blood pressure doesn't drop overnight like it should, you end up with these high blood pressures, which is by definition hypertension, but also contributes to a lot of downstream effects such as kidney disease, heart failure, other cardiovascular diseases, and it's quite disruptive to all of the functioning of the body. And that's also really relevant in terms of treatment of these things because normally when people are prescribed medications, particularly for hypertension, they're just told to take them once a day and normally people take them in the morning because that's the easiest time to take them. But what we're starting to realise is that it might be better to take things of an evening to get that heart rate and blood pressure down overnight and that actually might have more benefit for patients. So something as simple as just changing when people are taking medications might have really great clinical outcomes. So learning more about circadian rhythms is extremely important in terms of our health, not only because disruption of some circadian rhythms could be associated with disease development, but also because timing certain treatment interventions around these naturally occurring rhythms could lead to greater benefits. So in terms of clinical effects, there is definitely disease effects of disrupted circadian rhythms, but we also know that there are circadian rhythms in adverse clinical outcomes. So things like heart attacks and arrhythmias, so this is low heart rates, high heart rates, or any kind of irregular heart rhythm, as well as hypertension, all have a circadian rhythm. So because there are these normal circadian rhythms in the heart, that can affect when things happen. So people that have heart attacks uh, normally have it early in the morning because the underlying signalling is kind of at the right level to cause those downstream effects. So we really need to be aware of how that's happening and um, maybe what we can be doing to stave off some of those things. Uh, another example is elite athletes, veteran athletes, have really low heart rates and this can lead to heart rates that are so slow that the heart almost stops beating and it can have really big implications in terms of sudden cardiac death and because heart rate is naturally low overnight that's also when most of these events occur so there are a lot of clinical implications for normal and abnormal circadian rhythms in the heart. So we can clearly see the importance of understanding how circadian rhythms affect our physiology but what about situations where our circadian rhythms become disrupted like jet lag and shift work? Shift workers, they have compromised circadian rhythms. It's all kind of messed up because they don't sleep at the right time of day, they don't eat at the right time of day, and what ends up happening is they get really mixed messages. Um, so all of their organs kind of get out of sync, and that correlates with a lot of adverse effects. So cardiovascular disease is one of them that's really relevant, but also um, workplace accidents, and essentially there's a whole host of things that come from that. So it's, it's actually really disruptive to your normal rhythms. So now we come to physiology and films. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the science behind the blockbusters. So the film I have decided to talk about today is a film called Up in the Air. 
Oh, is this, this is George Clooney, right? This is George. This is George kind of going around all over the US firing people. He is a corporate downsizing expert. Isn't that a really nice title? Yep. yep. Um, anyway, he meets another frequent flyer and it looks as though the relationship is really um, <coughs> taking off <laughs> until an encounter with her partner causes some uh, turbulence. Oh my goodness, this is comedy gold, Emily. Yeah, comedy I know, gold. I know. <laughs> um, and the reason that I wanted to focus on this film is because throughout the whole thing, George doesn't look particularly tired or seem particularly affected by all the flying. Um, and as we heard from Carol earlier, jet lag, which is kind of circadian rhythms getting messed up when you travel across multiple time zones, can affect things like your sleep, and eating behaviour. So we don't really see this from George. He seems pretty composed as he's... Bright-eyed. Yeah, firing people left, right and centre. So, as I said, jet lag is a circadian rhythm sleep disorder and travelling across multiple time zones can disrupt your circadian rhythms. The severity of jet lag depends on how many time zones you crossed and which direction you travelled. So, for example, flying east is usually more difficult of an adjustment than flying west. Um, And it's estimated that it takes approximately one day per time zone for your body to fully adjust to local time. Wow, that's actually quite a lot. Yeah, more than I thought. Anyone of any age can have jet lag, although older adults are more likely to have more severe jet lag and may need a bit longer uh, time to recover. Some people are also able to kind of adjust more quickly than others in terms of jet lag. So there is kind of individual differences there. So maybe George is just Just one of those lucky people who can get off a flight, you know, grab his food and and go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they do say that eating is an important part of jet lag. You're meant to go Ah. and eat the first meal at the right time zone. So maybe he's just doing that. (laughs) Maybe. That's that's an interesting fact. So in terms of whether I think this is physiologically accurate, it's kind of hard to tell. Jet lag is a bit of, um, it's got a lot of individual differences affected by lots of different things. And he is only traveling across the US. So he's not doing a really like long haul flight. Yeah. It's kind of maximum three hours. So, um, so yeah, a bit undecided. Interesting. Thank you. So now it's time for physiology, true or false. So this is the part of the podcast where we explore some of the misconceptions around physiology. Right. Okay. So riddle me this, Emily. Yes. Adjusting the clocks for daylight saving time is associated with death. Oh my god! Um, maybe because clocks go what back forward? Uh, yeah, this is when the clocks go forward. So clocks go forward. You are losing an hour of sleep. Exactly. A bit tired. Maybe you've already also had a night shift. You don't get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. You fall asleep at the wheel. Let's say. Well, interesting to say that because actually, yes, there is a huge increase in the number of traffic accidents the day after daylight saving time begins. Really? Yeah. So this is so for all this stuff I'm talking about in spring when we move the clocks forward, as I said. And so, yeah, the important thing is that we lose out on an hour of sleep. And apparently this can have huge effects on our physiology. So, as I said, the number of traffic accident increases. This is the day after daylight saving time. And this is in both northern and southern hemispheres. Um, losing just an hour of sleep stresses the cardiovascular system 
So a lot of people with heart issues actually sort of get tipped over the edge and the number of heart attacks actually significantly increase the day after clocks go forward. Also, strokes increase. So actually there is, yes, daylight saving time is associated with more deaths. But interestingly, some of these things are actually reversed in autumn when the clocks go back. So, for example, heart attack risk is actually lower when the clocks go back in autumn. Wow. So the power of just an extra hour in bed. Exactly. It's quite amazing. Yeah. So the natural cycles in our environment and how our bodies respond to these can have a big impact on our health. Even our meal timings could have an impact on our physiology. The study of this is known as chrononutrition. Chrononutrition is the idea of studying the influence of meal timing on health. A lot of the research has focused on altering the type or quantity of food consumed, but there's more and more evidence building that meal timing per se can have an important influence on health. That's Robbie Jones from the University of Nottingham. Robbie and his colleague Pardeep Pabla, also from the University of Nottingham, were recently involved in a study investigating the impact of meal timings on health. The basis of their study is around time-restricted feeding. This is a form of intermittent fasting, which allows you to eat freely within a defined daily time window. In most studies, this is usually set between 4 and 10 hours, which is significant considering most adults spread their food consumption over a 16-hour window. Pardeep explained some of the problems associated with dieting and why they decided to look at time-restricted feeding. I think the challenges with any diet that people end up going on or, or taking part in to improve their health is really how enjoyable they find it. Often people get bored of their diet or they just decide that for one reason or the other it doesn't fit with their lifestyle. So I think it's about carefully choosing a dietary intervention that A, you're going to enjoy and B, one that you can actually fit into your schedule and how you live your day-to-day life. See, uh, often a lot of the problems associated with dieting is people will lose the weight, whichever way, quite rapidly, but then struggle to keep that weight off. And here we looked at not necessarily changing uh, what you eat, but just changing when you eat it and not necessarily even inducing an intentional calorie deficit and just essentially seeing if just simply shifting the time at which you eat your food to a little bit earlier during the day might be better for your health. So time-restricted feeding might be an intervention that is relatively simple for people to implement on a long-term basis. But what has research on intermittent fasting shown us so far? So a lot of the research has been done in rodent models where they um, restricted the energy intake window to the night. So rodents are nocturnal animals, so their active phase is in the evening. Traditionally, most labs allow continual food access throughout the day. So research showed that if they restricted this into the active phase, they found uh, metabolic benefits. There's been mixed findings on intermittent fasting in general on human subjects. We think this is for many reasons. One of them is the time of day used. So a lot of the intermittent fasting studies are done during Ramadan. So eating throughout the night or involve prolonging the overnight fast from skipping breakfast. There's a growing awareness of the circadian regulation of metabolism. For instance, that you are more glucose tolerant in the morning. So we sort of aim to take advantage of that by restricting the energy intake of our study to earlier in the day rather than later. In their study, participants were restricted to eating only between the hours of 8am and 4pm for two weeks. So what did they find? 
We found that during time-restricted feeding, there was an involuntary reduction in energy intake, which was on average around 400 calories a day. So this was despite encouraging participants to try and not alter the type or total amount of food consumed. Coupled with this, we saw no changes in physical activity. So of course, this leads to a negative energy balance, which we found resulted in a weight loss of around one kilo. From the continuous glucose monitors and the food diaries, we found that on average, participants reduced their daily energy intake window by about five and a half hours. So that was quite a significant intervention for them. And also in the study, we're interested in um, some more metabolic aspects. So we know that when we consume sugar, we don't want that sugar to uh, stay in the blood. We want it to go into the cells where it can be stored or, or used or, or burnt away. Uh, the hormone that controls this is insulin. And if you end up uh, releasing or producing less insulin for a given amount of sugar that you consume, you can say you've improved your insulin sensitivity. Uh, certainly that's what we uh, have seen after two weeks of time-switched feeding, that for uh, a given standardised meal that we gave before and after the intervention, um, the amount of insulin that your body needs to produce to, to deal with that sugar is actually less. They were concerned that the metabolic benefits they were seeing may be due to the small amount of weight loss by participants. So to control for this, they recruited another group of participants and asked them to eat the same amount as those in the time-restricted feeding experiment. But here, they were allowed to eat at any time of day. These participants lost a similar amount of weight as those in the time-restricted feeding study. But importantly, they didn't show any of the metabolic benefits, which means that the results of the study can be attributed purely to the timing of the food consumption. So restricting the window during which you can eat in the day might be beneficial for both your insulin sensitivity and your waistline. But the participants were not restricted to how much they could eat in the feeding window. So how do we explain the reduction in calorie intake and the subsequent weight loss of the participants in the study? Behaviorally, we found that most participants reported still eating three meals per day, but they were just not hungry between those meal patterns because they're so compressed. So they skipped out snacking between the meals, which I think is the main culprit for the weight loss. I think one thing that is really important is even though we didn't make any conscious effort to make people reduce the food that they would normally eat, just reducing the window that you allow people to eat inevitably led to some, some weight loss by virtue of just less time to eat. And also, this intervention was done in people who were already healthy. They weren't overweight or metabolically unhealthy in any way. So this is possibly the group who needed a, a dietary intervention the least. And we still demonstrated improvements in their metabolic health. So the implications of that for populations who are at risk of being overweight or developing uh, insulin resistance could be a, a nice intervention and quite a tolerable intervention for them to lose weight and improve their metabolic health. So it seems that time-restricted feeding may be a good way to improve metabolic health. So where's next for research in this area? So uh, I think it, we're in the early stages of human research. There's definitely some promising research out there. I think what's next in terms of research is to do it in bigger studies and directly compare using different eating windows because while restricting the energy intake between 8am and 4pm may be optimal, it's going to be difficult for a lot of people to stick to in terms of social commitments. A lot of people like to eat dinner with their families. I think that's why 
skipping breakfast has become more of an attractive strategy for intermittent fasting. Um, but there's interesting research in animals which suggests you can allow them to eat continuously throughout the weekend and time-restricted feed Monday to Friday, and you still maintain some of the benefits. So I think research should look at sort of the long-term sustainability of the diet. But I think it's a great way for people to try in terms of if they're looking to lose weight, just as an alternative to, to calorie counting. As with any dietary intervention, always make sure that you consult your doctor before implementing a significant dietary change. Moving on now to, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. And this is the segment where we talk about some of the weird and wonderful studies in physiological research. So I've actually done something very similar to you and gone down the jet lag route. Great. Um, so you've defined what jet lag is. I'm not going to go into that again. So scientists have obviously been searching for a cure for jet lag for a long time because, I mean, that would be really convenient for all of us, wouldn't it? Oh, that would be amazing. Well, actually, in 2007, a group of scientists in Argentina, they found it. What? Yeah, they found it, but don't get too excited because uh, they found a cure for jet-lagged hamsters. Right, okay. That big societal problem. Yeah. Um, so this magical cure is called sildenafil, and it's actually already used by 100 million people worldwide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, 100 million men worldwide, because sildenafil is actually also known as Viagra. Lovely. Yes. So in this study, researchers injected hamsters with Viagra, and then they pushed their animal's light-dark cycle ahead by six hours. So that's like the equivalent of putting them on a plane from New York to Paris. Oh, romantic. Um, isn't it? Yeah, for those little hamsters. And so hamsters kind of... The way that scientists seem to judge their circadian rhythms is by their wheel running schedules. So hamsters are quite energetic. I'm sure anyone that's owned a hamster has heard them running on their wheel in the middle of the night. Yes. And so they seem to do this at similar times each day. And what these scientists found is that those hamsters that had received the Viagra treatment actually adjusted their wheel running schedules to the new light regime 50% faster than the other ones. Oh, wow. So this Viagra really did have a huge impact. So I think obviously the big question is, would this work in humans? Yeah. Well, I mean... First of all, I think we need to think about some of the side effects um, because obviously Viagra is mainly known for, to use its scientific term, its erectogenic properties. Yeah, we don't want some awkward flights. No, we don't, do we? <laughs> but actually, this study claims that the doses they were using in hamsters were sub-erectogenic doses, so perhaps it might not be a problem. Okay, so the hamster did not get... Um erect <laughs> no they did not they did not um apparently but also they're injecting hamsters you know we don't mm -hmm. tend to inject viagra we take it as a pill so perhaps that could have a difference as well also this only seems to work when hamsters circadian cycles are pushed forward there weren't any differences when the light dark cycle was delayed by six hours so i'm assuming that that they've not really taken this any further because this study was done in 2007 and we've not seen anything since then You'd think the media Aww. would have picked up on the fact that, that we could cure jet lag by yeah. using Viagra, wouldn't you? But but nothing. No, I've not seen anything since then. So no. watch this space. Yeah, watch watch this space. So how does how how is it working? Like how did it work in the hamsters? Well, they're not a hundred percent sure, but they think it's likely due to this compound known as CGMP. Um, and so this molecule signals blood vessel dilation, which is why it's related to uh, erectile dysfunction, obviously. Uh, but it also modulates the body's internal clock in response to changes in the light-dark cycles. Um, and Viagra actually inhibits an enzyme that breaks down this CGMP. 
So that means that this CGMP sort of hangs around for a bit longer in the region of the brain that's responsible for controlling the body's internal clock. Other research has actually shown that CGMP is involved in setting the internal clock forward. So as you're saying, when flying from west to east, but not when moving the clock back. So this is actually supports the study and they found that this only worked when pushing the schedules in a certain direction. So that's all from us on chronobiology. We've learned how even organs such as the heart can be influenced by a 24-hour rhythm. And how simply changing the time at which we eat could lead to metabolic health benefits. I've been Emily Wilde. And I've been Amy Warnock. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.